Well, those of you who are starting to notice these things will notice the uh, the white stole this morning. And uh, remember that uh, white is often uh, done on feast days. And this is the feast of Christ the King. And uh, this is the last day of the church calendar. And one of the things that I'm really liking about being in this new Anglican world is the rhythms and routines that go along with it, because it, it helps us to not merely read the Bible, but to embody its story. Um, I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but I, I think it's actually an important one. I think we value and respect the Bible best when we value the form in which God gave it, which is story. God didn't give us a systematic theology. Um, he didn't give us a bunch of disembodied propositions. We, we, he didn't give us a list of doctrines. And I'm, I'm not saying that doctrines and that sort of thing are unimportant. I'm simply saying I think we value the Bible best when we value the form in which the author gave it, which is essentially a story of what he's doing and creating a people who will be his people on the earth. And so it's one of the things I like about the calendar is that it, it helps us enter into those rhythms. So today's the last day, uh, the, the Sunday's the last Sunday of the Christian calendar and somebody along the way thought, hey, you know, a good way to end the year might be to celebrate Christ as our king. And then next week starts Advent. So when you come in the room uh, next week, just be prepared for some fun changes, some fun decorations, um, something that just says we're starting the Christian year and we're starting with Advent and celebrating and placing ourselves in the presence of Christ as Advent just simply uh, calls to mind presence. So we end the year with this sort of worshipful surrender to the king. We, we begin next week with Advent, and we'll talk more about Advent as we go. But Advent has had a kind of couple of tracks in history. Um, a lot of the ancient Catholics especially use Advent as a time of preparation. And so it took on kind of a solemn feel. But in more recent centuries, there's also been a kind of tradition where Advent is seen as more celebratory. And we're celebrating the first coming of Christ and, and celebrating the fact that he's coming again. So you'll get a feel for both of those over the next, uh, next six or seven weeks. So what this whole business of Christ the King really does, as you see in the readings this morning, is, is that it forces a choice. Now, those of you who, who maybe were reading along in the gospel uh, reading this morning might have thought, hey, 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 wait, where's that part about where Pilate says, what is truth? You know, uh, we didn't we didn't read that line this morning, but, you know, that's how he answers Jesus. And, and so what we think of today when we think of Jesus, you know, this this feast of Christ, the king, is that it really brings us to a choice to either sort of run our own kingdoms or queendoms or with loyal trust to submit to this Lord who we're just singing about, who himself connected his kingship to humble service. Did you catch that? Like, who could you actually with loyalty trust? And the king that we're worshiping this morning and now pausing to think about in terms of our readings is a king who submitted himself to humble service. But Pilate wasn't catching that. Here's what's going on with Pilate. Pilate's main job is to keep the Jews subdued and just like, you know, just picture Rome just saying, I don't want to hear about these upstart Jews. 
just pilot. Your job is just to keep them behaving. I don't want to hear about riots. I don't want to hear about boycotts. I don't want to hear about people holding ancient signs and, you know, protesting Caesar. Just your job is to keep them sort of just down and quiet. If you've ever been a kid of a parent of small kids, you know what I mean. Go to your room and play, right? And you just mean, just don't bother me. I don't want to hear toys hitting the wall. Just go to your room and sort of stay to yourself. That's what Pilot wants. Pilot wants what a young mother of three kids under eight wants. Some peace and quiet. Seriously, that's what his internal mechanism is. When Jesus comes into his headquarters, Pilot's internal mechanism is, don't tell me you're another king of the Jews. Because what he sees on his hand is an uprising. Because, see, there, in, in the near history there, Pilate would have understood one of two things happening. The Jews fighting with each other. you got the crazy zealots out at Masada. you got the quietists, the pietists, who are out living in the caves in Qumran. you got the Herodians, who are trying to be religious politicians. And these factions were always fighting with each other. And the Pharisees hated the Sadducees, and the Sadducees hated the Pharisees. And the scribes were walking around saying, no, we know how to interpret the law. And it drove the Romans crazy because they didn't like that infighting because it could spill over and cause a kind of civil unrest. But sometimes the Jews would get really uppity and they would pick fights with Rome. And so this is what's going on in Pilate's mind. Okay, all you young moms or even dads who can, you know, your kids come running out of the room, right? And one of them's crying. And what do you say? Joey, did you hit Bobby? No, I swear. I, you know, he's got a black eye, but I swear I didn't hit him. It was the doorknob, right? That's what Pilate's fearing. When, when Jesus comes to him, it's like, oh, no, you know, the Jews are at it again. Because in that ancient world, what everybody knew about kings was that they were absolute, all-powerful, autocratic, dictatorial people. That's who kings were. It was the divine right to rule. And so they ruled by whim, and whatever they wanted went. And there had been a lot of problems around kings around Jesus' time. Judas Maccabeus, Herod the Great, Caesar, all these wars. And so for Pilate, his like worst fear was coming to pass. You know what I mean? Am I the only one in the room with any sort of neurotic fears? Uh, I mean, I got a couple. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't like making like lawyer jokes and stuff because I'm sure there's a Christian lawyer in the room here somewhere. But I can make bishop jokes, all right? So, so uh, I, can, I, can, I can pick on bishops. You know, we all have these sort of weird fears. And there was this old Irish bishop. Uh, who uh, was going to this very formal dinner party, and his irrational fear was he had this fear of paralysis, that something was going to happen to him, he'd get injured or have a stroke or something, and he'd end up paralyzed. Well, he's sitting at this very formal dinner party, you know, in England. So just picture all this, I mean, in Ireland, picture all this beautiful china, you know, gold, all that stuff. So he's sitting at this formal dinner party, and he reaches out to his right leg, and he goes, oh, my gosh. My worst fear has come to pass, paralysis. And a few seconds goes by, and the lady next to him goes, Your grace, the thigh you're fondling is mine, not yours. And so he, uh, this, this is Pilate's dilemma. He thinks, my, uh, are you going to be okay? He thinks, he thinks my greatest fears come to pass, and there's going to be this Jewish uprising. So when he says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? What he's wondering is, 
oh my gosh, I can't let something like this happen on my watch. I'll be in big trouble. So it's typical political self-protection. How do you get a vote? And I'm not picking on anything. How do you get a vote for health care? You get my district a couple of hundred million dollars and stuff of what I need. It's, it's typical political self, you know, sort of taking care of myself. And so Pilate just wants to know, are you going to mess me up? Are you going to cause me a problem? But this is odd because Jesus is poor. And he's from the wrong town. Nobody ever came out of Nazareth and did anything. And that's always a big deal in human society. Remember Clinton from Hope, Arkansas? Like, that doesn't fit. And so you spin it and you think, isn't this wonderful, this you know, amazing man from Hope, Arkansas? Well, that's kind of the vibe with Jesus. Nothing ever comes out of Nazareth. So he's poor. He's from the wrong place. He has very few followers at this point. And, the few, and many of those who, who he had when he was arrested and taken before Pilate, they left. So how can he be king? But Pilate's still got a problem. Maybe he's one of those deluded Jews and thinks he's king. And Jesus answers him, look, Pilate, you're all the tapes running. You're, I know this is your worst fear, blah, blah, blah. You know, but it's, you know, you're rubbing the long, wrong thigh. The, the, my kingdom is not from this world. Now, I know that the, 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 the passage there has a couple of times not of this world. And that's a very unfortunate translation. It really should be consistent from this world. Because here's what's happened is that when some people have thought that my kingdom is not of this world, they think of Christianity, of religion, of Christian spirituality as sort of out there, mystical, wooey-wooey, not really connected to this life. And that's a very unfortunate translation because Jesus is not saying my kingdom is not of this world. He's not talking about space or place or proximity. He's saying it's not from this world. He's saying, Pilate, the only kind of kingships you know of are those who are won politically or by war. That's not my kind of kingdom. It's not from this world, but it is for this world. Jesus says, I am the king and I precisely came to this world. And if you were to fast forward a couple of chapters in John, Jesus says to his disciples, as the father sent me into this world, so I'm sending you into this world. And that's an enormous bit of wisdom for those of us who care about Christian spirituality. Because Christian spirituality that is not particularized in people and places and families and jobs and bosses and careers and traffic is not spirituality at all. It's mysticism. It's just sort of out there somewhere. Christian spirituality is entirely worldly. The kingdom of God is a secular reality. It, it actually finds its greatest place and um, power when it's most connected to the world. And this is what Jesus wants Pilate to know, that, that my, my kingdom doesn't have its origin in the world. Its characteristics are not like the characteristics of other kingdoms you've known. But it is for this world, and it is in this world. I am the king. I like the way the, the message has it. Uh, my kingdom, Jesus said, doesn't consist of what you see around you. I'm not that kind of king. Not the world's kind of king, but I am a king. And that means he has a kingdom. That means he has a rule and a reign. And Jesus says that I have come into the world... And I'm going to send my friends into the world because though my kingdom is not from this world, it is for this world. And of course, this is what our readings this morning pick up on. 
that there is this one coming whose dominion will be to have an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, a kingdom or a kingly rule that will never be destroyed. Daniel sees this vision of one who is given authority and glory and sovereign power so that all nations, all peoples, men and women of every language and tribe would worship him. This is what Jesus means when, or excuse me, what John is understanding of Jesus when he sees this revelation that we read this morning of Jesus being the first and the last, the A and the Z, the Alpha and the Omega, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And Almighty there is a, if you think of it best as sort of a hyphenated word, the Sovereign Strong. I am the Almighty. I am the Sovereign Strong. And so Jesus wants Pilate to know that if his kingdom was from this world, that characteristically his followers would have fought for him. And so Pilate is here learning the same lesson that Peter learns later in the garden. And and we've talked about this before. Both learned the same lesson, that human effort or human fighting was not going to get Jesus out of this pickle. You know, there was a story moving here and something was in place and things were going on and no human effort was going to keep the soldiers out of the garden. No human effort was going to keep Jesus from being arrested and tried and beaten and mocked and crucified. That was not going to win the day. Resurrection was going to win the day. Jesus knew that he was the Alpha and the Omega. He created those soldiers and the metal out of which the the spears were meant to pierce him. He made it. He actually understood the subatomic particles. You know what I heard from a, I was talking to a quantum physicist this week and I don't know where I was, Portland or Seattle or something. And you know what I learned? That, 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 that nobody wants to talk about this yet, but when you even scratch deeper underneath like quarks, you know, the smallest bit of atomic material that anybody understands, you know what they're finding? Something that there's no other description yet for except for Light. What, so was there chromium in the swords? Jesus gets it. He made the stuff. He's Alpha and Omega. And he knew that the story he was caught up in was not going to be solved or he wasn't going to be rescued by that kind of stuff, but he was going to be rescued by resurrection. And that's important or we can't sing what we sang this morning. No guilt in life, no fear in death. We can only sing no fear in death because resurrection fixes it when you place your queendom or your kingdom with loyal trust under this king's kingdom. Then you have no guilt in life and no fear in death, because what solves your death is resurrection. Jesus said, he who lives and believes in me, though he die, yet shall she live you got a little drama in your life. Maybe a little economic upset. Maybe a kid who's wayward. Maybe a spouse who's not treating you particularly well or a boss who's a jerk. And the lesson this morning is we have a king. And if we submit ourselves to him, bringing up that dreaded obedience word, uh, something magical happens in our life. 
where guilt is banished and fear is gone and we're free and secure and therefore available in love to the world, to those around us. That's the big story. So when Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you, that doesn't mean just to carry on my task. And it includes that, but it can't be reduced to that. It means in the same manner, meaning feeling the same love of God, the same protection of the Father, the same hope in resurrection. I'm sending you into the world in the same manner in which my Father sent me. You're going with the same stuff. To use a theological term, you're going with the same mojo. The, the same mojo that Jesus had, he's saying, I'm sending you in that manner. Yes, you'll do my same stuff. You'll heal and help people get converted and you'll drive out demons and you'll minister to the poor. You're going to do all that stuff, but you're going to do it in the manner in which my father sent me. For Jesus says, Pilate, it's for this that I came into the world to testify to truth. And it's true that if a piece of metal hacks a bit of human flesh, blood will come. And that might actually drive people from the garden out of fear. But truth is something more than that. It includes that. It, it has to include that. But it includes something more than that. And that is truth as we know it is embodied in a story. Facts that we say true sentence about which is only what a proposition is. If you say a true sentence about something where your words match reality, that's a, a good proposition. Truth includes all that, but it can't be reduced to it. Those truths, those facts, those propositions all happen in a story in which, what did we learn last week? Who superintends history? God. And this stuff all happens in his story. I don't remember what day I left home, but I was sitting at the airport on Tuesday or Wednesday or something. And uh, Debbie and I had a stint in Virginia Beach uh, in the early 90s. And uh, I don't know about Debbie, but I loved watching the warplanes. Uh, when we moved to Virginia Beach in 91, it was right when the first Gulf War was over and all the carriers were coming back to Norfolk and to the uh, Naval Air Station in Virginia Beach. And it was beautiful. I mean, you see like 16 of these F-14s in the sky just flying around. And each time they flew around, one plane would land. Then they'd all fly around. Another plane was land. It was amazing, you know, as they'd take off from the carriers just out, you know, on the horizon. And I don't know why. I've just always uh, thought that was amazing. So I'm sitting at the airport the other day, and, and these military planes are starting to take off. And all of a sudden, I picture, you know, that's probably not a beautiful sight if you're an innocent person in Afghanistan. That's probably not a beautiful sight if you're an innocent Iraqi or if you're on the border of Palestine and Israel. You probably don't have the same sort of thoughts about that that I do. You know, when, when we're in Virginia Beach, you know, all the guys with their a beer in one hand, you know, and a hat flag on, you know, that's the sound of freedom right there, you know. You know, that sort of, yeah, well, yeah, that is the way most of us relate to it. But find some kid who's right now about 22 years old and going to the University of Beirut who grew up in Lebanon. And all he knows is those things drop things out of the sky that killed my whole family. And all of a sudden, I just started seeing 
warplanes taking off all over the world and commercial airlines from Milan and Budapest and London and Paris and Los Angeles. And all of a sudden, I could just sort of picture, you know, the world itself is spinning and aircraft are going everywhere. And I just thought, chaos or king? And I thought of the systems of our bodies, you know, from big things like bellies to, in my case, little things like eyelashes and molecules and atoms and circulatory systems and nervous systems and skeletal systems. And I thought, chaos or king? And at some point, our readings this morning teach us that's your choice. But it's not your choice in like, you know, bad dog, come on, make a choice. It really, we should say, that's our invitation. Chaos or king? Because what is truth? How did Jesus answer Pilate? I am the truth. And me and my father and what we're up to is the story that human beings were made to embody. And when you embody it, you don't just get truth. You get freedom from guilt, uh, um, no fear of death, a kind of security and freedom that allows you to live a life of love for the sake of others. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.